Our sermon will be taken from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of boots was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ross. Sorry. Uh, guys, again, just a quick few announcements uh, before we start. No, I'm not putting that on there. Put up here. Uh, real quick, uh, thanks, Gray, for all those announcements. Just a few more. One, we had a membership class a few months ago, and when we installed our members up front, I mentioned the names of the members that weren't weren't able to be there, uh, but I didn't mention one because I thought she was up front, but she wasn't. So just so all the members know that Jennifer Omar is also a member at the church, okay? So just so you know that, <laughs> and welcome her into, into it. I didn't want to make her feel left out or for you guys to not know that, so she's also a member. Two more. Uh, the new space, uh, we're excited about that. Please keep that address you have in the back of your bulletins um, with you. There's also an elevator that brings you straight to that room if you park in this parking spot that has a specific elevator. I'll have more details on that next week, but for now, the name of the elevator is, what is it? Avenue. It's the Avenue Elevator. Okay, so if you go to Lotte Mart, you ask where the Avenue Elevator is, a Sapam or somebody, hopefully you'll be able to get there, park there. When you go up, you'll go straight to our worship room on the fifth floor. Last announcements. I'll be leaving for three Sundays. Okay, so I'll be gone October 29th, November 5th, and November 12th. I'll be in the U.S. Uh, with my wife and my family. We'll be back after that, but everything's taken care of. Everything will be okay. Um, I'm probably more anxious than anybody, but I know we have a good, great team here, people that can keep things running, and my daughter crying like that. That's, that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, Gray will be preaching uh, two of those Sundays, and also Elias. Uh, our music leader will be preaching one of those Sundays. And he has had a formal theological education, so we feel it is good and right for him to be part of that as well as, as the Lord leads. So we'll be excited about that. All right? So let's begin, as my daughter ends his, her cry, let's begin our uh, sermon on the book of John. So as Gray mentioned, we talked about the book of Ruth. We went through the book of Ruth the past few weeks. I personally really enjoyed it. It's very interesting. And it's an often forgotten book in the Bible, isn't it? So I encourage you to read it, study it, and if you want to use any of our sermon series to aid that study of yours, then please go to SoundCloud or download the SoundCloud app and type in Covenant City Church, and you'll have all the series of Ruth and other sermons there as well. 
So today we're going to go back to the series of John. We're beginning in chapter 7, where at first glance, it seems like Jesus was just having a conversation with his brothers, right? But if you take a closer look to it, actually you see Jesus Christ here being mocked by his brothers. How do we see this? Where do we see this? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 describes these brothers as those who do not believe in Jesus. For not even his brothers believed in him. So verse 5 informs us of two things. One, they were not believers. You know how sometimes we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters? That, that's not what he's talking about here. They're, they were not believers. They did not believe in Jesus. Who were they? They were the earthly brothers of Jesus Christ. They were Joseph and Mary's other children. Joseph and Mary was um, Jesus' earthly parents. And these are, the, these are the brothers and sisters of Joseph and Mary. These were not brothers in Christ. These were not spiritual brothers. These were the earthly brothers of Jesus who did not believe in him. And they're also mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. That's one. Two, it informs us that when the earthly brothers encouraged Jesus to go up to Judea and make his work known there in Judea, um, it says, verse 5, that this comment was not born out of a belief. This comment was born out of a disbelief. So this wasn't an encouragement. This wasn't a genuine, hey, go and show yourself. This was more of a sarcastic mockery. For his brothers did not believe in him. It's saying, if you truly are who you say you are, go to Judea, the Feast of Booths. There's a lot of people there, and why don't you show off who you are to them? That's, that's the tone. It wasn't a genuine encouragement. It was a sarcastic shooing of Jesus. So here we see this is not Jesus' spiritual, this is not spiritual brotherhood, this is the earthly brothers who do not believe in Jesus and mocked Jesus. But yet, we see that in the midst of this rejection, Jesus responded to their mockery with boldness and with love. Even if his response was not one that they wanted to hear. This passage is very relevant because it both encourages and convicts Christians, doesn't it? it? It can be encouraging to us because as we go through rejection, if we live our lives faithfully representing Jesus Christ and we experience rejection, this tells us that sometimes rejection isn't necessarily a bad thing. We'll talk more about that later. But also it can be convicting because it shows us that being always accepted by the world is not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes it might actually reveal a lack of faithfulness in our representation of Jesus. So let's jump into it. There's three points. A wrong view of rejection that can be harmful. A wrong view of love that can be damaging. The one rejected because of his love for you. A wrong view of rejection that could be harmful. A wrong view of love that could be damaging. And the one rejected because of his love for you. Pray with me and then we'll begin our sermon. Father, as we dive into your word and as we see the truths in which you have spoken in it and expose those truths uh, unto our minds and our hearts, we pray that you holistically teach us what you're saying and what it is, how it applies, and how it affects our day-to-day -day lives as we live this life uh, in humble reliance, representing you in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, a view of rejection that can be harmful. Let's start with verse one. After this, Jesus went to Galilee. That's verse one. When a passage starts with saying, after this, 
you might want to ask the question, after what? Referring to what happened before that, the experiences Jesus had before that. And if you read, if we remind ourselves of chapter 6, first we see that Jesus went through threats from the Pharisees. Remember that in chapter 6, the Pharisees were angry at Jesus. They mocked him and spoke against him. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders who believed that they can be saved by their own performance. They can be saved by their own obedience to God. Their salvation was dependent upon their performance. And they hated Jesus' claims about who he was. Who does Jesus claim to be? The one who washes away sin. The one who is through uh, redemption is found. And they hated him so much, verse 1 says, they even wanted to kill him. And then second, I'll also at the end of chapter 6, we see that Jesus' claims about himself not only made the Pharisees and the religious who were also the political leaders at the time hate him, but it also made his followers leave him. Do you remember? Everybody left, only a few stayed. And Jesus said, do you want to leave too? Saying that this is the truth I stand on. And I will not change it based on people pleasing. Based on getting more people to come. Here I stand. Would you like to leave as well? Of course, he said that lovingly. And now, as if being attacked by the Pharisees, and as if being abandoned by most of his followers were not bad enough, Jesus, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, receives mockery and rejection from who? His own earthly family. The very people that should be the ones that supported him, rejected him, mocked him, made fun of him. Let's go to verse 2 and 4. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What they're saying is, why don't you go to Judea and show off to the world all these crazy claims you make about yourself, about being the savior of the world, the, the redeemer, all these crazy things. Go out there and show off the people. I don't want to deal with it. And why Judea? Because a festival was happening called the Feast of Booths. You see there in uh, verse 2. And this is important to understand what the Feast of Booths is. We'll get back to that at the end. But it's a Jewish celebration that lasts for eight days long where people gather together and they put up booths or tents. And why do they do this? It's to celebrate and to remind them of God's presence in the Old Testament when they traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land, Canaan. Remember God told them to make a temple where God's presence would reside in that temple in the Old Testament, right? You see this um, in Exodus and Leviticus. And during the wilderness, God's presence is with them in this temple. And you have all different things. You have a high priest who would represent God's people uh, in the temple. You have a sacrificial lamb or animal that you would kill to forgive uh, your sins before you approach God's presence in the temple because he's holy, holy, holy. And you can't approach God lackadaisically. You can't approach God uh, uh, without an awe and reverence to how holy he is and how sinful we are. And through these temple laws and rituals, and, which is represented by these tents and booths, the Jews, ever since then, um, every year, either September or October, for eight days, put up tents or booths called the Feast of Booths to remind them of the Old Testament temple and the temple laws and the rituals to celebrate God's presence among them. And, interestingly, they still celebrate this today. Fun fact, guess when this year's Feast of Booths is? Today. Isn't that interesting? It's eight days long. This year, it starts from October 4th, and it ends in October 12th. 
So October 8th is dead center of the fest Feast of Booths. It's happening today. The very same feast in which Jesus' earthly brothers sarcastically told him to go to. The very same feast in which people wanted to kill Jesus. It's happening today. And in a second, we're going to talk about the response Jesus had to his brothers. But for now, just put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Remember just before this in chapter 6, how much rejection he has already taken. Let's, let's take a look at his ministry track, okay? Um, uh, because of preaching the gospel through his acts and words, the Pharisees, the religious and political leaders, despised him. Powerful people wanted to kill him. His followers almost all left him. Only a few stayed behind. And now his earthly family rejected him too. Now, if God's gracious enough, and CCC grows to a point where we need a third pastor. And during our selection process, I tell you, the members, the options of our candidates. And one of the candidates that we have just happened to have the same ministry track record as Jesus did in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And I present the person to you and I say, Okay, guys, I want to introduce Steve to you. Steve's a candidate for a third pastor. He's been faithful in preaching the word of God. And here's his track record. He's been scored by very powerful people. Most of his followers left him. And oh, his family hates him. <laughs> what would we be tempted to say? Next. <laughs> right? He, he doesn't seem very fruitful. He didn't seem very successful in his ministry. He's been rejected a lot. Let's not go with Steve. But what I want to give us today is a biblical view of rejection. That rejection does not always equal bad. It does not always mean fruitlessness. Rejection, if rejection always means fruitlessness or bad, then we're saying Jesus' life in chapter 6 and 7 was very fruitless and he was a very bad minister. Right? Is Jesus a fruitless and a bad minister? No, he's not. How can we say that he isn't? when he was rejected and despised, because the Bible doesn't necessarily always view rejection as bad fruit. Let's get, let's get a biblical view of rejection. Look at 2 Corinthians, I think it's on the screen, chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Let's talk about this passage here for a bit. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Triumphal procession is it's like a victory march. Like when you won a war, you're, you're triumphantly proceeding. And through us, Spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Notice, as we victoriously march, as we spread the fragrance of Jesus and the gospel everywhere, through our lives, through our words, there will be two results. Note again, these two, I can't stress this enough, these two results are under the category of triumphal procession, both of them. One version of triumph is that some will find it as life-giving. Some will accept it and receive it. But the second version of triumph is what? Some will smell it, and they will smell it from death to death, and they will reject it. But they are both triumphal processions. In other words, both people's acceptance of the gospel and their rejection of it is defined in the Bible as what? As triumph, not just when people receive the gospel. 
Now, it's important to note in chapter uh, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, if you look at verse 14 specifically, it tells us what people reject. People reject him, the knowledge, uh, the fragrance and knowledge of him, of Christ. If you reject it because you're being annoying, you can't categorize that as triumphant. Okay? If you're being rejected because you're being self-righteous and you're, you're despised because you're looking like you're holier than thou, that's not Christ they smell. That's you they smell. <laughs> and you, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't say I'm victorious if that's what they reject. Or if you're being insensitive and rude in the way you speak of the gospel and the way you represent Christ. That's not what's categorized as triumphant. What is triumphant is that although you have winsomely and your best try to humbly, sensitively, kindly speak the gospel through your words and through your life, and if people see Christ in your life and they reject you, rejoice. You're currently in triumph. And this is what's happening to Jesus in chapter 6 and 7. He was faithfully speaking of the gospel. He revealed who he was, the people, why he came, and his followers left him. The religious and political people wanted to kill him. Even his own family mocked him. Don't be concerned that you're experiencing pushback from the world. You know what you should be concerned about? It's not when people accept or reject the gospel around your, in, in your life, uh, the gospel they see in your life. But if no one around you does either of those two things, that's when you should be worried. That's fruitlessness. When, when no one around you finds you as life-giving towards Christ or finds you as an aroma of death because they see Christ, if that doesn't happen, that's concerning. If no one is falling in love with Jesus because of your life, if no one is being repelled by the gospel because they see Jesus emanating through every pore of your life. That's, that's what you should be concerned about. That's when you should be asking yourself, am I really representing him? Am I modeling he who lives in me? Does his fragrance emanate from me? Jesus said in verse 7 to his brothers, the world can't hate you. It cannot hate you because you're of the world. But it hated me. And look at the crowd's response in verse 12. John was very intentional about this. There's two responses to Jesus, both on opposite ends. Uh, let's look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. First reaction, they hear Jesus, they see Jesus, they, he's, a, he's a good man. A good man is not just a moral good man. A good man is referring to a term used in the book of Deuteronomy, which means a good man that leads people towards God. A good man that is, that is godly and leads people to God. It's not just a good moral, moral man, but actually pushes people to a relationship with the true God. And leading people astray is not just talking about moral, like bad behavior straying. It's talking about he's leading people away from the true God. So it's not just a good person, a bad person. It's he's a true prophet that leads people to Christ, or he's a liar. That's not leading people to Christ. See, the narrator records two reactions on opposite ends because he wanted to make it clear, something that should ob be obvious to us. When someone claims what Jesus is claiming to be, when someone claims to be God in flesh, when somebody comes and says to you, I'm the Redeemer, I'm the one who has come to die for you and forgive you from your sins, what do you do with that? There, there's just no middle ground. You can't say, oh, to me... He's not that, but he's just a good person. Jesus, to me, is just a good person and a good moral example. You can't say that because he claims to be God in flesh, the Savior of the world. Just read John chapter 1 to 6. 
And if you say he's a good person but not God, if you say he's a good moral example but not God, you're saying he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he can't be a good moral example. He can't be a good person because then he'd be lying. You see, there's no middle ground to such an audacious claim. I am the God who has come to redeem you. So what, what do we do with that? We can't wiggle our way out of it. Jesus Christ draws the line on the ground and he puts us in a very uncomfortable spot and he says two options. Either you believe and receive my claims and you fall into worship or you don't believe, you reject my claim and you crucify me because I'd be a heretical blasphemer. You, you can't say he's just a good person because when you say that, you're saying he's a blasphemer and a liar about being God. You see, there's no middle ground. Accept, reject, worship, crucify, whether it be a fragrance of life to life or a fragrance of death to death. Now, let me hit the brakes a little bit. Because I know to some of us, saying this sounds very it's black and white. It sounds very either for or against me. Just it, it doesn't sit well with many people. And to be honest, it makes me feel uncomfortable too. It really does. It, it kind of makes Christianity and Jesus sound like a separationist or a divisive religion. right? It's kind of drawing a line and it leaves no room for middle ground. And it feels uncomfortable. And I totally get that. I do. Um, I remember watching one of the uh, Star Wars episodes. I think it was Revenge of the Sith. Siths are like the bad guys, right? Sorry if I'm oversimplifying the complex narrative of Star Wars for you avid fans out there. They're the bad guys. And I remember a quote uh, that Anakin Skywalker, in his last battle before he fought Obi-Wan in this like fiery lava place, I don't know if you remember that scene, and Anakin said this before he became Darth Vader, before he became a Sith Lord, one of the bad guys. He said this to uh, Obi-Wan. If you're not with me, you're against me. And he drew a line. He said, you accept or you reject. And Obi-Wan said, he said this. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Only a Sith says for or against. Only a Sith says accept or reject. Only Siths do that. And to be honest, hearing the implications of Jesus' claims about himself and seeing how people reacted to him in, our, in verse 12, accept or reject, and how we're called in our lives to faithfully represent Christ and draw a line and, and say, to, this line may be to you in a realm of life or death, it kind of makes me feel like a Sith Lord. <laughs> Doesn't it? It kind of makes Jesus and Christianity feel like the dark side. <laughs> Like there's no middle ground. You're acting like such a Sith Lord. Only prideful, dictator-type people do those kinds of things. And I totally get that. I understand where you're coming from because I feel the same thing. So let's move into the second point. Point number two. A wrong view of love that can be damaging. Okay. Let's take a look at Jesus' response to his earthly brothers here. Okay, he addresses, uh, uh, which addresses the issue that we just talked about. So, so after the brother sarcastically mocked him, and told them to go up to the Feast of Booths to show off and do all this stuff about claiming the Messiah and Redeemer. Jesus responds in verse 6 to 7, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
My time has not yet come, referring to his, the cross, the time where he will publicly show the world who he is and ultimately be rejected, nailed to the cross, where he dies for our sins. This is when he's going to show himself to the world, not in some festival. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, saying, you guys are of the world. You smell like the world. They're not going to hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. See? There it is again, calling people evil. Drawing a line between good and evil, between right and, law, right and wrong. And it sounds, it sounds very close-minded. It sounds very divisive. It sounds very Sith-like. Does not loving mean not drawing a line? Does not loving people just mean accepting everyone without judging them? Why draw a line at all? All these lines seem very exclusive and unloving, and they sound very wrong. And I get that. But we must be very careful here. We can't really say that drawing lines like Jesus did is unloving. Why? First, it's impossible to not draw lines. Think about it. Christians are not the only ones who draw lines. Religious people are not the only ones who draw lines. Everyone draws lines. Hold on now. Not me, you might say. I don't draw lines between right and wrong because I think drawing lines are wrong. Did you hear that? It's very subtle. Let me repeat it. I don't draw lines between right and wrong because I think drawing lines are wrong. Friends, when you say that, you just drew a line between right and wrong. You're saying it's wrong to draw a line and it's right not to draw a line. You drew a line. Not only Christians are the only ones to draw lines. Religious people on the land, everybody draws lines, even those who think lines are wrong. They drew a line. So first, it's not closed-minded to draw lines. It's impossible not to draw lines. Everyone draws lines between right and wrong. But two, not only is it impossible to not draw lines, second, in order to truly love somebody, sometimes you must not shy away from drawing lines. Because sometimes the thing that the person you love is doing is harmful and evil and wrong. And when it comes to a time where you have to confront them, but you never do, because you don't want to sound closed-minded, you want to seem all accepting, and you never draw a line between what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, what's dangerous or unhealthy or helpful or not helpful. When you don't do that, and you let people just do whatever they want to do, although it's harmful and wrong, that's not called love. That's called enabling. You're not truly loving them. You're enabling them to do whatever they want. It is loving for you to tell an alcoholic friend that it's not good to drink this much throughout the week. It's good. It's not unloving. You do it sensitively and kindly, but the most loving thing to do is to draw a line in that case. It's good to tell a racist person that's not right. It's wrong. You cannot value people based on race. It would be the most loving thing to do for them and for others for you to draw the line there. I've said this before in my sermons, but I think it's worth saying again. True love is loving someone more than you love their opinion of you. True love is loving someone more than you love their opinion of you. Sometimes we don't want to tell people things that are hard to hear because we love what they think of us more than we love them. Sometimes it's most loving to draw the line. 
And you know, it's interesting in verse 7, yes, Jesus says that he testified the works of the world is evil. So he called the world evil. He drew a line between right and wrong there. He rebukes them. He draws a line. But if you look at it, whenever the term the world is mentioned in John before chapter 7, so verses, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 6, it's always in the context of Jesus being in love with it. What is the most popular verse that every Christian knows? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, sent his own son not to contend, but to save the world. John 4, 42. Jesus Christ described by the Samaritan people as the savior of the world. John 6, 33 and 51. Jesus was the one who came down from heaven to give the world the bread of life. The world is always mentioned as an object of Jesus' foundational and ultimate source of, or object of love. He loves the world. He wants the world to, to know him as somebody who's loving, but yet here in verse 7, chapter 7, he says it's evil. In order to love the world, you must not enable its evils, our evils. Jesus Christ did not enable us in our evils. He drew a line, and he's saying to us, this line might upset you. This line might make you hate me. It might make you reject me, despise me, mock me, even crucify me. But guess what? I love you more than I love your opinion of me. Friends, this is how we love those around us. Are we truly in love with their souls? Are we? Or are we more in love with their opinions of us? If you're more in love with their opinions of us, you will never dare to share the gospel with them. You, you will never be an aroma of Christ to them. Okay, sure. I get all that. I see how Jesus claims about himself being the God and Savior of the world. That, that kind of draws a line and it forces people to choose one or the other, accept or reject. There's no middle ground. And I get how in my life, if I represent that Jesus faithfully through my words and through my actions, I might get the same response that people responded to Jesus with, which is, I might to them be a aroma of death to death, but to others it might be an aroma of life to life. But I still can't shake this feeling that makes me feel like a Sith Lord. I just, it's, it just still makes Christianity feel like the dark side. It feels like this such a divisive religion, and it's just scary to think about that, especially in the climate of where religion is going in Indonesia right now. And I think I know why some of us feel this way. I think I know why I feel this way. And it's because of this. I think because we've misunderstood what kind of line we're called to draw. We've misunderstood what kind of line the church, you Christians, are called to draw. Let's take another close look at verse 7. Jesus called the world what? Evil. The world evil. It hates me because I've called that it's evil. Now when we hear the word evil, what do we immediately tend to think? What are the kinds of people that come to mind when you think of the word evil? Liars, maybe drug dealers and drug addicts, right? That's what comes to mind. Or murderers. These are the people that come to mind when we think, these, these are the people we think Jesus is addressing when he called the world evil. Those Jesus calls evils are all these people. It, but is that who Jesus is calling evil? No, look at verse 7 again. Let me, let me read it. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works are evil. The people that Jesus calls evil, the people, uh, the people that he addresses as evil are the ones who hate him. Look at verse 1. Who were the ones who hated him? Was it the drug dealers? Was it the immoral 
people? Who were they? They were the religious people. The Pharisees. They were the ones who hated Jesus. The ones who think that they have it all together. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Not the drug addicts, not the liars. Not the, I'm not saying we not, don't draw lines there. But, but what Jesus is addressing here is the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time. Those are the ones who are evil. That's weird. Why would Jesus call religious moral people evil? Because they thought their religiosity and their morality was enough to save themselves. And thus, they rejected Jesus and his gospel claims. They said, I don't need you. I don't need this cross. This mercy, you are the way, the truth, and the life? No. I can get to God on my own. I can get to God by going to church a lot. I can get to God by doing all these religious things. That's how I get to God. Not... Not by following you, not by listening to you, by, by observing all these Old Testament rituals and all these other things. I don't need you, Jesus. Jesus says, those are the people that hate me because I've testified that all their self-righteous religiosity, all their self-serving moralism is evil. That's the people Jesus described as evil. Now, this is mind-blowing because now our problem solved. Yes, Jesus in his claims of who he is in the gospel draws a line. Yes, in our lives and in our words, as we represent Christ, sometimes we're called to draw a line. But the line Jesus drew here is the only kind of line that when it's drawn, it actually invites people in. You see? It's the only line that gets people to come in. People might see the line and say, I don't feel moral enough to enter into this line. I'm not like those Pharisees. I don't, I don't feel like I'm good enough to receive Jesus' claims about himself. Then you're in. <laughs> you're invited in. I, I don't feel religious enough. I don't have enough spiritual points to enter into this line and receive Jesus' claims about being my redeemer. Great. You're in. <laughs> you're the ones that get to receive that. You're the ones that are invited in. This is the only kind of line that when you draw actually invites people to come in. Come. What does the gospel do? It invites people in. It doesn't say you must perform before, before receiving Jesus' claims about being a redeemer. It doesn't say you must perform before crossing this line. It says if you feel like you don't deserve to cross this line, those who realize they can't perform to deserve to be inside these lines, they are the ones who I invite in. Not the ones who don't think they need me. Not the ones who think they can do it on their own, based on their own religious morality. Here's what he's saying. Here's the line. If you think you're not good enough, the gates of forgiveness is wide open for you. But if you think you can save yourself and earn salvation because of your own acts of morality or religiosity, then here I draw the line. Because I love you. Now we'll hold fast to this line. Sensitively, sure. Humbly, yes. Winsomely, of course. But I will not move from this gospel line. Even if you reject me, even if you mock me, even if you despise me, I will remain here driven by my love for you and not your opinion of me triumphantly. And this is the way Christians are called to live their lives. This is how the church is called to operate. Not a, as a group of people who draw lines that make people feel less superior than them, like the Pharisees, but a group of forgiven sinners 
who in their law draw, law, line drawing opens the gates wide to all of those who feel like they're not good enough. It is the only line in which when you draw it, invites people to come. You see? So be encouraged. When through your life, people smell the fragrance of Christ in you. If it leads them to life and accept Jesus, rejoice. But if it leads them to smelling death and reject Jesus, then rejoice all the same. But do not budge from that gospel line that accepts and forgives all. Well, okay, that's great and all, but that's really hard to do, isn't it? It's really hard to continually present Christ in this way and draw a gospel line that might could cause people to reject the Christ in me. Where, where can I find the power to consistently do that? Let's go to our last point. The one rejected because of his love for you. Let's continue in our passage. We see something very interesting here. So, we've seen Jesus' response to his earthly brothers in verses 6 to 7, and now we continue verse 8 to 9, and we see uh, more of his response. He said, you go up to the feast, talking to his earth- Jesus talking to his earthly brothers. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus said, I'm not going to be in the Feast of Booths. But in verse 10, what happened? He went there. It seems to be contradicting. Look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. That's weird. I thought you said you weren't going to go up in verses 8 to 9, but now in verse 10, you went up. What's, what's going on here? It's something very significant. Let, let me explain it. But I think in order to explain, it might be helpful to say this. You know in your life that someone can physically be somewhere without really being there. Here's what I mean. Have you ever been on a date with your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and though the person is physically there, his mind and his heart is elsewhere? And then you say something like this. Honey, you're not here with me, are you? He's physically there, but he's not, he's not really there. Or maybe you're in a meeting at work, and a coworker is distracted, isn't really participating in any of the discussions. His heart and his soul is elsewhere. And you say, hey, man, you with us? And when you ask your date, honey, are you with me? Or when you ask your coworker, hey, man, are you with us? You're not meaning, are you physically here with me or with us? That's obvious that they are. What you truly mean is, where are you? Are, is your mind here with me or is your mind elsewhere? Where, where are you right now? This is what's going on with Jesus here. He said, I, I'm not going to go to the Feast of Booths, but then he physically still went there. But he wasn't truly there. He wasn't truly a participant at the feast. Look at the descriptions in verse 10. He was physically there, yes, but he didn't come when the feast began. His brothers went up before him. That's when it began. He came late. He wasn't a part of the whole thing. And um, he went in private. It said in private, not in public. He didn't participate in any of the celebrations. He wasn't a participant in the feast. He was alone. He was doing his own thing. Um, so yes, he was physically there at the booth, uh, feast of the booth, but he wasn't really there to participate and be part of any of it. So he was physically there, but he wasn't there to be participant of it. So why was he there? Well, we see in the next few weeks that he was there to preach the gospel again, to draw this line that welcomes everybody to come in and not participate in the feast. But for now, I, don't, I want us to not miss this really beautiful picture a picture that I believe that if we keep this picture before us, it will give us the power to continually represent him even in the midst of the world's rejection. Here's the picture. 
try your best to put yourself in that time, in that festival. So, back to that festival, okay? Imagine the feast. Imagine a lot of Pharisees around, uh, people wanting to kill Jesus, looking for him. Imagine Jesus' brothers participating in the feast who rejected Jesus, eating a, I don't know, I don't know what a Jewish food is. Um, Bought something in the stands, they're all there, they're all rejoicing, they're all celebrating. As they're reminded of what? Of God's presence through the Old Testament rituals, right? So imagine the booths being, being uh, made and, 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 and um, uh, constructed, being raised up, and perhaps people telling stories about the Old Testament temple and how God's presence was among them in this, in this temple, and perhaps reminding each other of the high priest that represent them, uh, for God's presence, maybe reminding each other of the sacrificed animals that were killed for the forgiveness of sins so they can, they can commune with God in His presence before entering the tent. Imagine all that. All the while, in the midst of this joyous celebration, which celebrates the presence of God, a man walked through it in his lonesome self, a person rejected, mocked, despised, someone they wanted to kill, Jesus. Look at how ironic this is. Who is this Jesus? What is the temple? The temple is where God and man meets. Who is this Jesus, if not our true temple? What He describes himself in John chapter 2, verse 21. He was talking about the temple, and I think it's on the screen. And he said he was speaking about the temple of his own body. When he is raised on the cross and crucified for your sins in which your sins are forgiven. He becomes the meeting spot of God and man. The true temple was rejected in the midst of a celebration that was celebrating God's temple. How ironic is that? Who is Jesus if not our true high priest? Who is our mediator that represents us before God? And now before God, he can say they are clean and forgiven because I've died for them. In the midst of a celebration that celebrated the Old Testament priests, the true priest walked alone, rejected, despised. And who is Jesus if not our true sacrifice? Whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins? Who, was he, who did John the Baptist call him in, in, in John chapter 1 when he saw Jesus? Behold, what? The Lamb of God. You see the irony here? Jesus, the true temple of God, the true high priest, the true Lamb of God, was rejected in the midst of a celebration that celebrated God's presence. <laughs> the true presence of God ignored, rejected, despised, wanted, dead. But he didn't mind it at all. This is actually why he came. Isaiah 53 says, He walked among us silently as a lamb led to the slaughter, yet he kept his mouth silent. Why? Friends, because the only way he can truly love you is if he was rejected by the world. This is the only way he can be our temple. This is the only way he can be our high priest. This is the only way he can be your sacrificial lamb that was battered, that was killed, that was slain, so that he can have you. He rejoiced in the world rejecting him, because through their rejection, he gained you. If he did not hold fast to that line, even when his followers left him, 
even when the most powerful people at the time wanted him dead, even when his own family despised him, if he did not hold fast to that line, you would have had no temple, you would have had no high priests, and no sacrificial lamb. But yet despite all that, despite our own rejection of him, he stuck to that line so that he can embrace you. Because he loves you more than he loves your opinion of him. So as we sit here today, and around the world, the Feast of Booths is going on. And many different types of rejection of Christ is going on. Let me encourage you to hold fast to this gospel line. Be reminded of our Savior, our true temple, our true high priest, our true lamb. And if through holding fast to this line, people accept Christ and find life in Him, rejoice. But if through holding fast to this line, people reject Christ and therefore you, rejoice all the same. You are in triumph. For you have loved well. And if you're here today, perhaps you're feeling I'm not good enough to begin a relationship with Christ. I'm not religious enough. I'm not moral enough to enter into this line. Remember what kind of line it was that he drew. You, I hope, will rejoice too because you are the very ones he's inviting in with open arms. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is that you, the innocent, most powerful, righteous being of the universe, came down in flesh and decided to die for us weak sinners who daily abandon you and worship our own gods, who abandon you and find you, as we're often tempted to think, as close-minded, as a line drawer, without realizing that it's impossible to not draw lines and not seeing that this is the only line that actually invites people to come in. And Lord, as we talk about the world rejecting you, we do not excuse ourselves from that world. We were once a part of the world. We are once those who rejected you, who mocked you, who found you as a Sith Lord maybe, and thought that you must not be loving because of all these lines. And even in our mockery, Mockery may be done by words, but mostly, most likely by our lives of your law, of your rule, of your gospel. You remained faithful to that line, and you climbed on a cross that you may embrace us, even if that meant you being rejected by the whole world. What a love we do not deserve. What an embrace we do not deserve. What a God whom loved us and cared enough for us and died for us. Father, in this embrace, in this mercy now, in your presence with us through the person and the spirit of Christ, let us now sing this last song and embrace the embrace you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.